Master Hagun's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi! How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom! What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the Tuesday, the 19th of October, 2021, and this talk is being streamed uh, on Mixalar um, as Auckland continues to be under Level 3 lockdown. What I wanted to uh, talk about this evening was um, the power of chanting and vows and bows. In the front of the, the chant book that we use, the one from the uh, Rochester Zen Center, it quotes Roshi Kaplo saying, Mind is unlimited. Chanting, when performed egolessly, has the power to penetrate visible and invisible worlds. This um, statement he makes, uh, I continue to appreciate it. And... Uh, Not, and appreciate it not fully knowing what he means exactly by visible and invisible worlds, but having some sense, little flashes of a sense of what he means by this. On Saturday, uh, Richard and I were officiating for a funeral, and naturally it, it was a small one because... Um, the the regulations don't allow for more than 10 or, or 11 people to be present. 
And uh, for this particular funeral, um, it was mostly uh, p the people there and, p and people listening remotely. Um, many of them were Japanese speakers. And so we were asked um, if we could um, conduct the or, or chant the Heart Sutra in Japanese, which we um, agreed to do. Um, needed quite a bit of, of um, practice beforehand because we don't do this regularly. Um, but it, it struck me when uh, doing this chanting um, how powerful and mysterious it can be. I had said in the in the uh, in, in introducing the chanting to the, the people present for the funeral that chanting can be a kind of bridge, a bridge um, to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and, the, and to their great vows. And perhaps this is one of the ways that um, Philip Kaplow, what he means when he talks about invisible worlds. And I've experienced it often with chanting, that at a certain point there is a kind of shift that happens and we find, us, find ourselves suddenly in a, you could say, in a more spacious dimension and often in a, in a kind of a present which does not exclude the past and the future, but there is this, this sense of, of, of continuity. And this, this happened also on, on Saturday at this funeral. We were chanting in, in Japanese, in the Japanese, Sino-Japanese pronunciations, and certain lines were, became very vivid and familiar. And uh, can't really find a, a, a reason for that since, since I've chanted this, this Japanese version so little, uh, only really twice at two, for two different times, I should say. Um, the first session that I did with, with Sasaki Roshi after coming back from doing a workshop in Sweden in 1982, we chanted the Heart Sutra every day. Um, I guess it would be five or six days. And also did a very moving ceremony on the last night of circumambulating the, Zen, the Sendo um, while, while chanting the Heart Sutra. And I was surprised to find that I could, did, could do most of it just after that short week of chanting it once, once a day without the book. And then the other time was when we, we did a short training at Bukokuji in 2001. 20 years ago. But these, these um, sutras can work on us very deeply and uh, soak in to our being, so to speak. So um, I'd like to read from a couple of sources about, about sutras and also, if we have time, about bowing. And the first, the first um, 
source on this matter is um, Hakuin Yasutani Roshi, Roshi Kaplow's first teacher, or main teacher rather. And he says, he says that there are three reasons why we chant sutras. He says, first, we recite them to make an offering to Buddhist ancestors. Second, to create a noble relationship with all, all beings. And thirdly, to unite these first two actions with our Buddhist training. And this, this um, we'll look a little bit at each of these and just comment that um, when he talks about in the second one of creating a noble relationship with all beings, I think that's what I was referring to when I called this sutra chanting as a kind of a bridge. A bridge to the, 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 the great vows that we are held by in Buddhism, the, the vows of the, these great bodhisattvas to, to not rest until they've um, helped to liberate all beings. This great, great heart that the, the, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and our ancestors have. So he goes on a little bit to talk about the first one of making an offering. It's a way of expressing gratitude. Our action in displaying a Buddhist image and offering it incense, flowers, candlelight and deep bows is an expression of gratitude. The greatest delight for Buddhist ancestors is for their followers to respect, to maintain and to spread the teaching. In fact, the the, the Buddha said, said this when, when he was asked by um, students, how can we show our gratitude to you? Um, he said, by, by practicing the teaching. There's no greater satisfaction than to see the practice being, being realized in, in students. He says, the greatest delight for Buddhist ancestors is for their followers to respect, to maintain, and spread the teaching. This is the case, even though we don't encourage any kind of um, proselytizing in, in Zen in terms of spreading the teaching. We'll say a little bit more of this later. Therefore, we sit before an image and recite with sincerity the sutras which they composed. In this way, our sutra recitation is the expression of our gratitude to them. And, and so important with, with chanting is that it is an embodiment. It's... it's, it's allowing the syllables of the sutras to, to resonate in us, to vibrate through our being. This is very different. Chanting is so very different from reading silently. 
and we'll, we'll um, explore this a little bit with the other source that I'm going to read a little bit from. Continues, Buddhist followers want to have others know about and believe and realize the noble teaching of the Buddha. In order to do this, we must read sutras as often as possible. It is necessary and important to do this to establish a relationship with many people. You may ask why, then, we may read sutras alone or before a dead person. Such recitation has value, and I will explain it to you. So again, um, we want to have others know about the Dharma, but we don't just, in a reflex kind of way, proselytize. We, we, we respond if asked, as that indicates some readiness in the asker, some openness. So only when an occasion arises, there's nothing to be proved by converting lots of people. But, on the other hand, um, every time we, we are in a situation where people um, have contact with the, with the teachings, then seeds may be being planted. And, and ceremonies within our tradition which um, involve often uh, people who are not practicing, such as weddings and funerals, are a time when seeds are planted. What happens with those seeds is, is we don't know. Yes, Italian Roshi continues. We recite sutras before others as an education of their subconscious minds. On the surface, it may seem that that effectiveness of teaching is limited by the extent of understanding. So, it may be thought, if we read difficult sutras, they will have no effect. However, only people who do not understand the power and subtlety of the subconscious hold such an opinion. If you have studied only a little about the subconscious, you will know that even though you do not grasp the meaning with your conscious mind, you may understand very clearly with your subconscious. Or, if you do not get any conscious impression, you may already have a subconscious impression. Moreover, you will know, if you have studied the matter, that our conscious mind is influenced by our subconscious, indeed, that our subconscious operates control over our character. And of course that is for good or ill. And we, we come back to the notion of the seeds that have been planted. Because we can we can plant and, and cultivate, nurture unwholesome seeds and wholesome ones. And you we could say that the more the more wholesome seeds we can plant in our, our subconscious the less room there is for the unwholesome ones to take take uh, root. So we could we could liken chanting sutras as to be like um, like sowing a green manure crop in our garden over the winter in order to to suppress the, the weeds. And, and enrich the soil.
what we expose ourselves to is is so uh, important and there is so much we can expose ourselves to so easily in, this, in the in the small screen that we so often have in our hands this all manner of of uh, images and and words and forms equally what we what we share what we spread if we're interested in involved in, in social media what do we pass on to others this is, we, should, we should really take this seriously be careful about what we share is it true is it wholesome is it uplifting or just going to be filling people's minds with more stuff he continues now reading sutras alone in a mountain temple is announcing Buddha's teaching to all the world, to all the universe. For our conscious minds, we need a radio station and a radio. However, on the subconscious level, all people in this world and all life in this universe receive perfectly the sutras recited by one person in a mountain temple, and they accept completely the doctrines of Buddhism. Each of us is, is like a, a radio receiver, um, receiving what is tr being transmitted. And in these, in these times, these COVID times, um, we, we may be picking up on a lot of the, the the powerful emotions that there are swirling around fear especially uncertainty depression so in a sense we can't avoid this but what do we do with it when we, we receive it? Can we, can we still transmit what is, is wholesome? He continues, Furthermore, if you know the grandeur and subtlety of the thinking process, you will realize that just thinking the sutras without using the voice also has a great influence upon the people of the world. Roshi Kaplow said, mind is unlimited. This is the, this is the basic premise on which, on which 
um, how mind cultivation is based, that there's just one mind. One great web of life. And each of us a node on that web. A jewel-like node which receives and reflects back. Thus, whether or not others can see or hear, whether they are alive or long dead, if we recite sutras time and again with great conviction to the visible and invisible worlds, we permeate everywhere and guide many to Buddhism, saving all beings. Therefore, the recitation of sutras is very meaningful work. I presume that you understand that the first two elements of sutra recitation are elements of Buddhist training, and these, these two that he's already talked about, about expressing, expressing gratitude and, and um, um, creating noble relationships. But I want to emphasize this point, that there is a great difference in effectiveness in both elements according to the way you recite the sutras, with great energy and single-mindedness, or half-heartedly. And here we're reminded that, that um, sutra chanting is a practice. In fact, sometimes um, said to be a form of zazen. And, and it, it definitely is a practice and one that's, that's we could say, a uh, a kind of meditation, a kind of zazen, but also different from it. Um, sometimes we can feel uh, too upset to do zazen. The mind is just can be just racing and and um, cascading with with thoughts and feelings. And remember going through this. At a certain point when I was training in Rochester, my mother got very sick and I was very upset that I couldn't be there with her when she had to have some surgery. And uh, whatever I did, I felt, felt like I couldn't, I couldn't settle into a zazen. So instead I went into the Canon Room, which is this little little chapel off the main zendo in Rochester, uh, with just three mats in it and a, and a very um, delicate uh, folk canon figure for a Chinese one uh, with a very sweet ex expression on her face. And so I sat in the canon room and just chanted the canon sutra that we, we just did a few minutes ago with in our healing chanting service. And with over time of just ch just chanting this, this, these ten verses many times, then after a while my heart calmed down, and I, I think one of the reasons why this particular sutra worked so well was I could chant it as a way of calming myself, but also as an ex was as a way of giving form to 
my distress at being so far from my mother. The words were, were gave, gave form to the sense of connection and love I had with her. So the, the pain of being so far away was turned into uh, a way an, an affirming of the connection that, that, that highlighted that, that distance for me. Yasudani Roshi contrasts doing the the um, sutras kind of half-heartedly and giving them real energy and single-mindedness. And this is this is the way we're encouraged to do the chanting when we chant together in the zendo, to really throw ourselves into it, to chant with some volume and energy. To become the chance. He continues. He says that if you if you do recite sutras with real energy and single mindedness and you do it frequently enough then your concentrative power is strengthened by this. If you've already um, had some insight, some awakening, then that, that awakening will shine more brilliantly in your character uh, when reinforced with, with sutra chanting. He says we, we can then act more effectively in our, our everyday life. So again, again the, the sutras can, can be a kind of bridge for us, a bridge between the, the, the formal teaching and our everyday lives. And if we do chant often, we'll find phrases and images coming back to us in certain situations. The... the the, the teaching of the sutras, as Yasutani Roshi was saying before, um, become embedded in us and, and arise in response to situations that we experience. He says, the most important attitude in reciting sutras is to recite with your whole spirit. And in conclusion, let me say that if you recite sutras with your whole heart, there will be no difference between Zazen and your recitation. To do everything, really, with our whole heart is the key. Now I switch to our other source, and this is um, um, great Chinese late master Sheng Yin. 
and we'll be reading a little bit from a book uh, called Zen Wisdom, Knowing and Doing, 38 Conversations with Chan Master Xing Yin. And the conversations we'll be reading from are Why Read Sutras and Prostrations. Question, do you recommend reading the sutras? There's uh, the answer. There are two ways in which one can read sutras. One is to read the sutras as you would any other book. In this sense, reasoning and intellect are involved, and the reader's intention is to understand what is being said. The second way is to recite or chant the sutra, in this approach, you are not trying to understand the content of the sutra. The purpose is to collect and focus the mind and to cultivate samadhi power. So very much in agreement with uh, what we just heard from Yasutani Roshi. If you read a sutra for intellectual understanding, naturally you encounter parts of it you do not understand. If the problem is terminology or a philosophical idea, you can check reference sources. However, if after checking references you still do not understand, you should pass over it and continue to read. There will be parts in every sutra that will be beyond your comprehension. If, it, if you chant sutras, the purpose is not to intellectually understand what is written. If, while chanting the sutra, certain concepts come across, that is fine. You don't have to shut your mind to them. The sutras have um, layers, layers and layers of meaning. And um, our, our living works, you could say, that, that will show up different aspects of themselves depending on how we approach them. He goes on to suggest that actually if, you were, if your purpose is intellectual understanding then you might do better off, um, be better off reading the, the, the Shastras rather than the Sutras, the, the commentaries. He says the, the Shastras were written by um, enlightened ancestors in a rigorous, systematic and logical manner. And, the, and, the, and he says that in the, in the Shastras, Buddhist teaching is, is presented in a more logical and thoroughgoing way than in the Sutras. He says Sutras, on the other hand, usually express just one or two ideas in different ways, no matter how long the sutra is. For example, the Mahaprajna Sutra consists of 600 volumes, but the entire sutra speaks of only one concept, emptiness or non-attachment. The same is true for most other sutras. Actually, the repetition of the same idea begins to get tiring. He's done a lot of sutra reading and, and interpreting. The repetition serves a specific purpose. 
it allows the Dharma concept to sink deeper and deeper into the reader's mind. The sutra presents the idea from numerous angles and uses many illustrations and analogies. In essence, however, it is always the same concept. Because of the focus on a few ideas and the repetition, sutras are perfect for chanting. However, if you want to read a sutra for intellectual reasons, that's fine too. So the, the, this, the, the repetition and the coming in things from different angles um, means that the sutra is in a sense working, working on us uh, from um, many different angles. goes on to recommend the Diamond Sutra um, and the Heart Sutra as, as, as particularly pertinent and beneficial for Zen practitioners, Chan practitioners. He also re recommends the Sharangama Sutra um, the Villamakurti Sutra. questions a little bit further on. A student asks, what is your opinion of modern writings such as Zen mind, beginner's mind? Writings like this are good. If years from now these writings are still considered important and worthwhile, they will become ancestors' writings. In other words, when they have stood the test of time. Student, is it okay to chant the sutras silently? Master, if you chant silently, you must mentally make the sound. If you do not, you will lose concentration and perhaps fall into a trance state. That's a, um, an important point if you do want to chant silently, is still to um, be mentally experiencing the sounds of the words, because this is a large part of how they, how they act on us which all therefore gives rise to the next question asked by a student. Should we chant the sutra in its original language, either Sanskrit or Chinese, or is it all right to chant in English? Master's reply. If you do not care to know the meaning of a sutra at all, then it would be better to chant mantras instead of sutras. Although mantras have meaning in their original language, it is not necessary to know the meaning, Reading, reading sutras is different. Even though you don't intentionally try to analyze the concepts, the meaning naturally and spontaneously sinks into the mind. As you recite sutras, simultaneously your mind calms down and your understanding of Buddha Dharma is constantly corrected and refined. Therefore, it is best to chant sutras in the language you understand best. I think of um, Rishi Kaplow. Uh, coming um, 
locking horns with Yasutani Roshi when he uh, started having people chant the Heart Sutra in English rather than in Japanese. I think it's quite right that, that, that it's best to chant something like the Heart Sutra in, in one's um, native tongue. Um, but, but knowing the meaning quite well from the English and then going back to uh, Chinese or Japanese sources, it can also be powerful. Because you hear, the, you, you hear and experience the, the, the music of the chant, which, which is different in different languages, but it's, there's something uh, powerful about that. He goes on, an ancestor of the Tentai school was reciting the Lotus Sutra and while he read the chapter on the Medicine Buddha, he suddenly saw that very Dharma assembly with Shakyamuni presiding, so he had a vision of what was being related in the, in the Lotus Sutra. It was as if the Dharma assembly was still in session. He even saw his own master sitting in attendance. After that, his wisdom increased tremendously, and in fact, he became known as the minor Shakyamuni of the East. In more modern times, Master Tai Shi, uh, 1890-1947, was reciting the Mahaprajna Sutra during a reclusive retreat. Suddenly, he lost all sense of time. Some time later, he returned to his normal state. After that experience, his wisdom welled up like water from a spring. These are examples of enlightenment. In both these examples, the masters were not analyzing the sutras. They were reciting them over and over. That is all. He relates another master from the Ming dynasty who had many experiences, but none of them came from meditation. All came from reading sutras. Once, in fact, he was writing a commentary on a sutra when suddenly wisdom welled up within him. He wrote things that he had not originally intended and it all came out spontaneously. Reading as well as writing can lead to enlightenment, but of course it depends on what you're reading and writing. Reading sutras without having thoughts in your mind, without analysing their meaning, can lead to enlightenment. Um, a famous example of this is the Korean master Chinol, who we've read from in Sishin, who um, had a series of, of insights or awakenings while uh, from, from his reading of the sutras and, and um, taught a lot about the, the, the oneness of sutra and, and uh, Zazen. It was all does all depend on the, the 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 way in which you approach the sutra, and, and with an added this attitude of openness, of questioning, of curiosity, then the, then the sutra can become like 
um, a koan or series of koans. In fact, in the early koans that are taught, there are a whole um, series that are um, taken from the Diamond Sutra and worked on as koans. He goes on to say that mantras are different. Reciting mantras helps to calm and focus the mind. A certain amount of power can be generated from reciting a mantra as well as from reading a sutra, reciting a sutra. But can reciting mantras alone and exclusively lead to enlightenment? The Chan school does not support this belief. I think some other schools would disagree. Perhaps, um, though, they would also um, recommend other practices that to go along with reciting mantras. But again, my guess is that it would come down to the mental attitude um, that was was behind the the, the, santra, the mantra recitation. Wholehearted, one-pointed recitation. Now we just turn to um, talk a little bit about bowing, which is such an integral part of of, uh, chanting services. He says, prostration is an ancient practice present in India long before Buddhism appeared there about 2,500 years ago. At that time, religion was the dominant force in India and there were accepted modes of interaction between people and deities in the spiritual realm. Prostration was such an accepted form of interaction. When people stand or sit, The head is up and the eyes look forward. When you prostrate, you are symbolically putting your head at the feet of whomever or whatever you are prostrating to, and the upright palms symbolize holding the feet of the other. The head is the highest part of the body, and the feet the lowest. So the prostrator is using the most dignified part of his body or her body to touch the most lowly part of another's. In this position, it is much easier for sentiments of humility and, and limitation and imperfection to arise in somebody's mind. So it's an act of, of, of um, lowering the mast of ego, as Roshi Kaplo used to say. In this position and state of mind, one atta- one's attachment to self is lessened. The mind tends to be clearer. Problems come more sharply into focus and they fade away more quickly. One's attachment to self is lessened. Somebody, I don't remember now, who um, uh, encourages people in prostrations to, to throw themselves to the floor. 
to abandon the, the tight clinging to self. He says that when, when since these sentiments of, of humility and, and um, openness arise, then it's, it's easy, easier for us human beings to, to come into contact with um, the, the beings of more than human worlds, those, those invisible, invisible worlds that, that Roshi Kaplan was talking about. He says, whether these, these uh, beings, these deities really exist it's not the issue. They have, do they have any objective existence? That's not the point. Mind is unlimited. Mind includes these powers. Still, we cannot say that a religion is merely superstition or and dismiss or deny the existence of a spirit realm. There are indeed other realms and humans do interact with beings in those realms, whether we are aware of it or not. For this reason alone, prostrations are useful. It is a way of transcending our human limitations and getting in touch with the spiritual reality. Taking refuge in or showing gratitude to the three jewels, that's Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, is a symbolic action most Buddhists are familiar with. It's what we, we start most of our chanting services off with, three, three refuges plus three prostrations to go with them. It is done through courtesy and respect in two distinct ways. One is by making offerings and we talked about um, one of the things that we can offer are the sutras, and the other is through ritual. Ritual respect can be shown in many number of ways, but the simplest is to join palms, gaze at the forefingers and bow. A more profound gesture than this is prostration. Um, it's more profound, prostration is just is more profound because it uses the, the whole body. It's more complete. running out of time, but we'll just take one more quick question in this, from this passage. The student asks, what do you mean by making offerings? Master, just what it sounds like. You offer something of yourself to the three jewels. You do the best you can and give what you can. If you can afford it, then offerings may include money, but money is not the only form of offering. 
You can offer water, food or flowers. You can also offer your services. Remember, it is your mind and your intention that count. Prostration is like making an offering with the body. According to the sutras, there are six ways to practice. First is to read sutras. Second is to copy the holy texts. Third is to prostrate. Fourth is to make offerings. Fifth is to repent. And sixth is to expound the Dharma. Meditation and contemplation are part of a more specialized practice. In ancient times, when people cultivated the Dharma, they always began with the first six practices. Many people, when meditating, have physical and psychological obstructions, which are manifestations of previous karma. They may complain that they are either drowsy or scattered and cannot even read sutras for very long. If they read aloud, they get tired. If they read silently, their mind wanders. At such times, prostration is a good practice. In fact, um, in Master Sheng Yin's autobiography, um, I think it's called Footprints in the Snow, he talks about being an extremely dull student and unable to, to as, a, as a young monk, unable to um, learn by heart the sutras that he was supposed to learn. And his master at the time um, uh, assigned him to do prostrations, um, which he did um, uh, 500, 500 a day. And um, he found this practice first to be tiresome, but then um, he, f he came to appreciate it more and more. He's, he he describes getting this kind of cool sensation in his head, and over time, his mind cleared. His master had told him that if he wanted to be smarter, he had to prostrate to um, Guan Yin, and he did um, these 500 prostrations a day. And eventually his mind cleared, as we were saying. So if you do find that your mind is particularly drowsy or scattered, then prostrations can be an option. A student asks him, "What would you recommend doing prostrations as a substitute for meditation once or twice a week? And he says, if prostration becomes part of your practice schedule, it is very good. But it shouldn't substitute for meditation. You should prostrate in addition to meditating. However, when you try to sit and just sit and just feel too uncomfortable, either in body or mind, then it is okay to prostrate instead. Um, we need to be willing to exper ex experiment in our practice and, and, um, and, and uh, trust our, our 
sense of what is right, really in a, in a way we're the, we're, we're the best judge of what, what is, is, uh, is appropriate for us at any time in our practice. Well, um, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. That's all on Mixler now, but we will have a catch-up on Zoom. Um, that the uh, the link for that it's always the same one. It's it's in the uh, most recent weekly update. We have about five minutes now before we we open that call.